Uh, we're diving right in this morning, so hopefully you were here last week to hear uh, Chad's great lesson on how to think about the book of Revelation. If you were not here, I strongly encourage you to go uh, online and to listen to that. Uh, that way you can begin to think um, and orient your uh, imagination, your heart and mind around uh, how to even approach studying a book like this. Um, but that's kind of how we will set our own thinking this morning as we get into Revelation chapter 1. Uh, a couple announcements for you this morning. Uh, the first is this. On each of your tables, there should be a sheet uh, for registration. Uh, many of you have registered. We know that. Some of you haven't. And so the way that you could really help us help you is to write all of your names down at your table as well as your contact info. I think there's some spaces for that. could be for email, that kind of thing. Uh, that way we can make sure that we are contacting you correctly as well as your groups are able to contact one another correctly. So please do that today. Write legibly uh, so Elaine can read that and get all of your info entered into our system. The second thing is this. You've probably heard Mark talk about this before. Um, one of the values uh, that we are trying to cultivate here at PCPC is, is the value of abiding in Jesus Christ. And there are many ways that we abide in Christ, but one of the most profound in my life, and in those of you who have ever done this before, you know this is true, is a silent retreat. Uh, if you've never been on one, it is one of the most powerful ways that you can connect with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in a real and powerful way. And the reason is because you are putting aside, it's almost a fast, from all of the noise that we have in our life, literally all the time. And uh, you have an opportunity uh, coming up a week from Thursday to go on a silent retreat with Chad Scruggs. He'll be leading that. Uh, we've had a few uh, spots open up at the last minute. And so that's why I'm telling you about it. We've got a couple spots that if you'd like to go, I know it's last minute, but we want to extend that invitation to, to all of you men. If you'd like to go on a moon silent retreat up to Colorado with Chad, uh, let us know. Let Chad know. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal time with Jesus Christ. It'll be from Thursday, so a week from this Thursday, uh, up until Monday. So you'll just miss right Thursday, Friday, and Monday. So if you're able to do that, talk to Chad about it. If you're interested about going on this one or any future ones, let us know. We'd love to tell you more about silent retreats. All right, so here's what we're going to do. I want you to get out a Bible. If you have one, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. You can get out your sheets as well. I will pray for us, and we will dive in. Our Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for all that you've done for us. Um, and Father, this morning in particular, we are grateful that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to be God incarnate among us to die for us, to rise again. And Father, this morning we pray that you would give us a greater vision of your Son, Jesus. That we would be, as men, worshipers of Him and of you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that what would define us centrally as men, uh, regardless of what we find ourselves doing day in and day out, is that we would be known as worshipers of you. May that define all we do, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, uh, in a great book called Fear and Trembling, uh, had this to say in the opening books. And if you've never read it, the, the title, Fear and Trembling, is taken straight from Philippians 2, 
uh, 12. Uh, when Paul says that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and what Kierkegaard saw is a world that was no longer uh, afraid respectfully of God. A, a world in his day where there was no reverence, there was no awe. And so this is what he says in the beginning of that book. He says, not only in the world of commerce, but also in the world of our ideas, our age has arranged a regular clearance sale. So he's saying everything's for sale. And everything may be had at such absurdly low prices that very soon the question will arise whether anyone even cares to bid. All right, what is he saying? Well, he's saying this. He's saying in his day, just like the world of commerce, even the world of ideas and thoughts, that everything was being put on the low shelf. <laughs> everything was being dumbed down so much that there was no longer any awe, no longer any reverence, no longer any appropriate fear to be had. And you wonder, that was written in 1843. And I would submit to you this morning that it's gotten much, much worse, has it not? That today, in 2016, if in Kierkegaard's day, things were being sought at a cheap price, that things are just absolutely for free today. I mean, there is nothing that is costly anymore. We've put everything on the low shelf. And the way that you might see this in our culture today, particularly when it comes to Jesus Christ, is this. I don't know if you've ever seen this t-shirt. I, I really thought about buying one but I didn't, and wearing it today. Have you seen the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt? Jesus is my homeboy. Now, that's pretty funny. It's a great picture of Jesus, right? At least, and we'll talk about this in a second. The, the European, right? Feathery hair, a lot of product in there kind of Jesus. And it says, Jesus is my homeboy. Or maybe you've seen the other t-shirt that's going around. It's been around for a while, that says Jesus surfs without a board, right? So think about it. He, he surfs without a board. He's Jesus, right? He doesn't even need a board when he surfs. But you'll see these shirts worn all over popular culture. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus surfs without a board. I don't know if you've seen this before. I have. I've witnessed it in person. The Jesus action figure. Have you seen the Jesus action figure? Uh, you, you can buy it. it he even, I, I, I'm pretty sure says that he has real moving action in his arms, right, to do this. That's literally advertised, the Jesus action figure. But none of this is new. These are all contemporary examples, but I know many of you men remember Jesus Christ Superstar. Remember when that came out? Right, the rock opera about Jesus' life. Think about each of these examples. It takes Jesus Christ and puts him on such an absurdly low shelf that there's no reverence anymore. There's no awe. There's no fear. Right? This is nothing new. If, as I mentioned before, if you go to any art gallery, you can look back to the Renaissance and see how people tried to portray Jesus Christ. And yes, you'll find some pretty magnificent works. But in most of them, somewhere back there, you had this picture of Jesus that was painted in this very European uh, very soft-skinned Jesus Christ. Brothers, I think we have a worship problem in our culture. And our worship problem is not just simply that we have idols, which we have many, 
But our worship problem is that we do not see Jesus for who he really is. A.W. Tozer, in the beginning of Knowledge of the Holy, put it this way. He says, low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. I want to read that again. Strong. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. And he went on to say this, Let us beware that we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects and adoration. He said, of course that's idolatry, but it's much more. He says, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Wrong ideas about God are not only the fountain from which polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. In other words, idolatry is not just revering things to be God who are not God. Tozer is saying idolatry actually begins with a low view of God himself. That's where it starts. That when you have put God on such a low shelf, that you have this wrong view of who he is, that of course then the things of this world would become much more appealing to us, would they not? And I think Tozer is absolutely right. And one of the great themes of the book of Revelation is this theme of idolatry. But what we'll find in Revelation is not just a calling out of our idols, which Revelation does. Idols such as greed, power, sexuality. Right? Revelation, time and time again, will revisit these themes and call out these idols. But what we'll find more than anything else is what Revelation aims to do is to give us a greater vision of Jesus Christ. As Chad said last week, the book of Revelation, it's pretty simple, although we make it so complex. The whole point of the book is Jesus. And so this morning, what I want to do for just a few minutes is to look at John's vision of Jesus in chapter 1. And my hope is that all of us would leave this place with a much deeper much greater vision of Jesus that would cause us to fall on our faces in worship and everything we do. All right? And so this is what John says, Revelation 1. Revelation 1, verse 9. The solution to idolatry that Revelation gives us is a greater vision of Jesus Christ. And this is John's vision. Verse 9. John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. And we don't have much time to slow down here, but again, just if you weren't here last week, we have John here, the apostle, right? He was very, very close with Jesus when Jesus was alive. And here he is writing, and he says, I'm a partner with all of you churches in the tribulation, right? We are being persecuted. Uh, we are in the midst of being attacked as Christians for our faith. So I'm going to partner with you in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was in an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so for that reason, we believe that John was on some sort of island in seclusion, right, in exile. That part of his persecution is being on Patmos. Why? Because he has been preaching the word 
and been testifying to Jesus. So here he is, verse 10, notice what he says. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. All right, so we're going to stop right there. If you are here last week, you heard Chad talk about that in order to do this well, in order to understand um, this kind of literature, we've we got to begin to really put ourselves in John's place, to use our imaginations. That's going to be hard to do at 7 a.m. every Tuesday morning. But I want you to imagine this. Here's John, and notice what he says. There's a lot of imagery here. He doesn't just say, I heard a loud voice. What does he say? A voice what? Like a trumpet. So you be, already begin to ask yourself, why would John say like a trumpet? He could have said lots of things. Why like a trumpet? Well, there's biblical imagery there, right? The image of when a trumpet blasts, right? The image of Christ's return, right? The image of God himself descending on his people, this call of a trumpet, a voice like a trumpet John hears. Verse 11, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about next week. That there's an occasion. This is, as Chad said last week, this is a letter. This book is a letter, and it's a letter written to seven churches. Those seven churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And we'll look at those churches next week. So this is the occasion. This is what is setting up the book of Revelation. This is the introduction. John is receiving a vision. A vision of Jesus Christ himself. And that vision comes in the form of a voice in the beginning that sounds like a trumpet. And the first thing that we see in this vision is this. That Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Messiah. That's the first thing. Look at verse 12. John says, Then I turned. So he hears this voice like a trumpet. Behind him he turns to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet, like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice, like the roar of many waters. Okay, do you see it? This vision of Jesus that John has looks a little bit different than our homeboy, right? This great vision of Jesus, robed, a golden sash, the hairs of his head white, like wool, like snow, his eyes like flaming fire, his feet like burnished bronze. Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we see in this description is that Jesus is the Messiah. And we see this, verse 13, in the midst of the Lamb stands one like a Son of Man. Now the Gospels over and over refer to Jesus both as the Son of God and the Son of Man. And when you hear that in the Bible, you might be tempted to think, okay, well, that must be describing the two natures of, of Jesus, perhaps, his deity and his humanity, right? Son of God, that must be his deity. Son of man, that must be his humanity. But you would only be partially right. Really, the, the word son of man was not just trying to describe the substance of Jesus, that he, had, he was fully human. 
It was a title given to him. And it wasn't really answering the what of Jesus. Well, Jesus is man. It was, it was really answering the why. Why did Jesus become man? Well, he became man in order to die on the cross for our sins. He became man in order to be our Savior, our Rescuer. He is the Messiah. And this is a title that the book of Daniel in the Old Testament longed for. That the prophet Daniel longed for, along with all of the people of God, they longed for the Messiah. They longed for rescue. They were waiting for a rescuer to come. We see this in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 13, which, by the way, a very similar genre of literature to the book of Revelation. I saw in the night visions, and behold, a cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days as presented before him. Here's Daniel. He's prophesying the coming of the Messiah, the Son of Man. So here's John in the book of Revelation describing the same thing. And so much so that later in the book of Daniel, I want you to hear how Daniel describes his vision of Jesus, his vision of the Messiah. I want you to look. Keep your eyes on your page there in the book of Revelation. On those first few verses, beginning in verse 12 of John's vision, and just listen. This is Daniel 10, verse 5. Daniel 10, verse 5. I lifted up my eyes, and behold, I looked, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. The sound of his words, like the sound of a multitude. And what do you notice? It's very similar language, isn't it? As Chad said last week, there's not a whole lot that's actually new in the book of Revelation. That John's vision is matching up completely with Daniel's vision. And what did they see? They saw the promised Messiah, (coughs) Jesus Christ, the rescuer. Now, for the Old Testament people, this was huge, right? They, they, this was part of their cultural fabric. This was part of their national heritage. They were waiting. They were longing for a rescuer to come and deliver them. The problem for us is as 21st century Americans, that's not part of our national DNA, is it? It's not part of the fabric of our history. Now, if anything, as 21st century Americans, we have the exact opposite, Right? We're not longing for a Messiah to come. We are longing to be the Messiah, right? We are longing to be the rescuer, to rescue ourselves, our families, our companies, to rescue even our own country. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, do you even want a Messiah to come? Do you even long for that? What is... Jesus Christ as Messiah actually mean to you? That's the first thing. Jesus Christ as a Messiah. The second thing that we see in the book of Revelation is this. Look with me, verse 17. We see that Jesus is the first and he is the last. He is the first and he is the last. John's vision of Jesus continues in verse 17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. 
Jesus tells John, fear not, I am the first and the last. And this is a repetition uh, of the same idea that he says in verse 8. So if you've got your Bible, just turn back, Revelation 1, verse 8. We looked at this last week. Where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. And so you have this picture in Revelation of God saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Right? This triune picture of God as the first and the last. And so where we have God the Father saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega in verse 8. Here we have Jesus saying in verse 17, I am the first and the last. Right? Alpha being the first letter in the Greek alphabet, Omega being the last. You'll see this repeated over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. Of course, this is a, nothing new. This is a biblical idea. We see this all over Isaiah. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, As his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the first and the last? Well, it means that Jesus was there he was there when God said, let there be light. Right? Jesus in eternity past, part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus was there at creation. He was there when the world was made. He was there when Adam was created out of the dust. He was there when Eve was taken out of his rib. Jesus was there at the beginning. <coughs> lording over all of creation. He is the first. But Jesus is also the last. What does that mean? Well, we're seeing that here in this vision, revelation, right? Jesus will be there in the end. Jesus will be there at the consummation. Jesus will be there lording over all things as King of kings and Lord of lords, and He will be the great judge. He is the last. One of your questions at your tables that I want you to wrestle with, well, if he's the first and he's the last, if he is Lord over creation and Lord over the consummation, then what does that mean about his lordship over right now? Because what I want you to understand and what, what I think Revelation is trying to show us is that this vision, while yes, it is sometime in the future, has something to say about our lives right here and right now. That there, Jesus is no less Lord over this world now than He will be when He comes again. He is no less Lord now than He was when He was there when God spoke the world into being. He is Lord over all things. He is sustaining all things. Paul puts it this way in Colossians. Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the first. He is the last. He is preeminent. He is supreme. This is the vision of Jesus Christ that John has for us this morning. He is high. He is lifted up. He is the first. He is the last. Okay, the third thing that we see in the book of Revelation. He is the conqueror. 
This is a theme that we will see, obviously, throughout the book of Revelation. We see it here in chapter 1. Jesus is the conqueror. What has he conquered? He has conquered sin, and he has conquered death. Verse 18, Jesus says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and the keys of Hades. Here is Jesus. He has conquered death. He died. He is risen again. He is seated at the right hand of God, and in his hands he holds the keys of hell and the keys of death. And brothers, what we have to begin to see is as our vision of Jesus gets bigger, as his lordship becomes larger, to begin to understand that he is not only just powerful, but he has the power to conquer your sin and the power to conquer death. All of the power that he has in his possession, he has poured out at the cross. Brothers, he died for you. He rose again for you. And this true story defines everything about our reality today. We have been set free by this conquering king who one day will return. This conquering king Jesus we see him conquering death in Revelation 21, where we're told that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no death anymore, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Death will be no more. Brothers, do you believe that this morning? And if you did, how would that change the way that you live today? Jesus Christ has conquered death He's conquered your sin. So why do we continue to wrestle with our sin if you've conquered it? We, we talked about that a lot when we studied Romans together, but it's one of the wrestlings that we will have together as we study Revelation. This great vision of Jesus Christ, this conqueror of our sin, He has set you free. He has conquered it. It has been nailed to the cross. He's risen again, and He is coming back. And in His hand, He holds the key right? The key to hell itself. We see him say this very thing to Peter, right? As we study the life of Peter in his letter, 1 Peter, uh, for the, you know, really this semester and into the spring, what does he tell Peter? You are Peter, right? The rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and then what does he say? I will give you the keys, to the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, right? The gates of hell, Jesus says, will not prevail against the church. So the last thing, the fourth thing that I want you to see in John's vision of Revelation before you go to your tables is that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of his church. And this is another theme that we'll see throughout the book. And we see this in verse 20. And the language that Jesus used here should remind us much in the same way that he explained his parables, right, when he was with the disciples. Do you remember the, the parable of the seed and the sower? That Jesus actually took the time, he stopped after giving that parable to actually explain it. Really, it was a parable about parables, that this is how you're supposed to engage this. He does the same thing here with John. Here's this grand vision of who, of who he is. And he tells John, this is how you need to inter interpret it, okay? So verse 20. 
He says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. We'll talk about that next week. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's this great vision. Jesus Christ clothed, right? Dressed uh, in, in, in this robe, a golden sash, white hair, eyes flaming with fire, and he's walking through seven golden lampstands. And Jesus says, listen, listen, this is how you're supposed to understand this vision. I'm holding seven stars. Those are the seven angels of the seven churches. But these seven lampstands that I'm walking around, in the midst of, these are the seven churches. It shouldn't surprise us that the use of light is used. The light is the image for these churches. Why should it not surprise us? Well, maybe uh, not too long ago, you kind of remember, we studied the Sermon on the Mount. And what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He says to the church, you are what? The light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand as it gives light to all the house, right? You, church, you are the light of the world. You are like a light put up on a golden lampstand, illuminating the city around it. That's what you are. And here Jesus Christ is, this great vision, walking among these seven churches, right? As King of kings, Lord of lords, and as head over his church. Why is he head over his church? Because all of this power, all of who he is, all of his authority, his kingship, his dominion, all of his divinity he has poured out on the cross and he died for you, church. He laid his life down for you, church. And now you are his. You are his. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians. He says, in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in the age, but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things, head of the church. All of his rule, all of his authority, all of his power comes to bear right here and right now on you and in me. Right now on our church, PCPC. All the churches in Dallas, right? The one church, capital C church in Dallas in the world. Jesus Christ is Lord of the church and his work is not finished until he returns. So this morning I ask you, what is your vision of Jesus? Where has it come from? What has informed it? Because you and I have a worship problem. And the solution is not just that we would name our idols and confess them this morning. It's that the, the only true solution to idolatry is not just calling out our idols, but it's that we would replace those idols with a greater vision of Jesus Christ. Because this was John's response, and it should be ours as well this morning as we close. Verse 17, John's response to this vision. That if you were there, if you really saw this, and what I want to challenge you and myself this morning is that we can see this today, right? That if we have a greater vision of Jesus Christ, that we must have the same exact response 
John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The only response that we could have when our vision with Jesus Christ is this big is worship. That we would fall on our faces, that we would fall at his feet as though we were dead. Right? That we would be so humbled by his power, by his dominion, by his holiness, that we could not help but fall on our faces and worship. Some of you may know the story of the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a great story, right? And, and a very common illustration. You have the children, right? And they're all sitting with the beaver family. It's a great book. Uh, they're sitting with the beaver family, and they're discussing Aslan, the great lion, the king. And they're trying to understand. They've never seen him before, so they're trying to understand who he is. And so Susan asks, well, is he a man? And Mr. Beaver says, well, of course he's not a man. And Susan says, oh, well, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I would feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And he says, that, Beaver says, that you will. Make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave or they're just silly. And so then Lucy, one of the other children, says, well, so isn't he safe? And Beaver says, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Right? It's this picture of, I think perhaps our God sometimes, the way that we envision him, he's too safe. As Kierkegaard said, he's, he's been cheapened, put out to sale. We need a greater vision. But what I want you to understand about this picture from the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe is what happens next. Maybe you don't remember this part of the story. It's actually what Peter says. Listen to what Peter says after they, Beaver tells them, God, you know, listen, Aslan is not safe. Of course he's not safe, but he's good and he's the king. Listen to what Peter says. Peter says, I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. Brothers, that should shape how we see God this morning in so many ways. That though this vision that of John should frighten us, should fill us with a holy fear, just like Peter, we should long to see him. That even though we are filled with a holy fear, we long to be in his presence and we long to fall on our faces and worship. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is the first and the last. He is the rescuer, the head of the church. He is Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that we as men this morning as we wrestle with ourselves and who you are in this vision that John has given us as the church, that you would give us a greater vision of your son Jesus. And while that vision might not be a picture as, as you've given John here, Father, we pray that it would be a greater understanding and concept of the dominion, the authority, the lordship, and the great rescuer that we have in Jesus Christ. May we be filled with a holy fear this morning. May we fall at your feet in worship. And just like Peter in the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, may we long, may we long to be in your presence. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.